Today, I'm coming to you from the latest version of my Blanket Fort, which is Blanket Fort 3.0. I'm in a very nice Airbnb, but the one downside is the sound quality is ridiculously horrible. So I've been experimenting with building blanket forts around me. Who would have thought that all the blanket fort building I did as a kid with my cousins would become such an essential skill in my adult life? Welcome back to our One Wild and Precious Lives and all our dogs and maybe Karen's cat as well. Today I've got Karen Deeds on the other side of my Zoom screen and I'm really excited about this because today's conversation is going to be a nerdy one. Buckle in, this will be fun. Karen is one of the trailblazers of multiple marker systems and what sets her apart from the crowd for me is that she's specifically using them in behavior modification rather than quote unquote, just in sports dogs. I've myself been playing with multiple markers for a while now with my in-person pet dog clients and of course in my own dogs. That was after or ever since Shade White Soul converted me when she gave me the prettiest and most enthusiastic obedience I've ever trained. And I directly attribute this to the marker system I learned from Shade. So big shout out to you, Shade. Uh, but using multiple markers outside of sports or precision behaviors still feels a bit experimental to me. Even now that I'm using it with more and more students and seeing them thrive with newfound clarity of communication. In any case, there is just no way I've used marker systems with as many dogs as you have, Karen and <laughs> thought about it in relation to behavior as much as you have. So I'm really excited about chatting with you today and getting to learn from you. After watching your presentation at the Dogs with Big Feelings conference, which we can get into in a bit if you'd like, I knew I had to get you on this podcast and I am so grateful that you said yes. Well, so, I am so glad to yeah. be here, Chrissy. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, on that note, I'm going to shut up for a moment now. Um, <laughs> why don't you let our listeners know a bit about yourself, your pronouns, your canine, feline, and human family, or anything else you'd like to share? Uh, I'm Karen Dietz. I am a certified dog behavior consultant through the IAABC, uh, and I share my household with my husband, Bob, and way too many dogs. Um, we're sadly losing them as they age out. I think we're down to 12 now. And uh, we have one big old cat that's still hanging on as well. Um, but we are currently living in Texas. But I do believe by the time this podcast airs, we might not be in Texas anymore. Our goal is to actually relocate to the Memphis, Tennessee area. I have a sister there who's a veterinarian, and we are looking to move there and uh, set up shop 
Um, my husband is a retired federal canine handler with uh, Texas Task Force One of uh, Department of FEMA, and he is currently on a job, a contract job up in Oklahoma City doing training director uh, for a nonprofit Ground Zero, which also trains USAR dogs. So our goal is to be able to do that as well from Tennessee. He's, we're going to start doing some uh, contract work for them there and hopefully be able to set up shop on behavior. But I'm sure it's a little bit different. I, I don't know the culture in Tennessee. I have a feeling it's a little, a little bit behind the times. Uh, but I, I think even I look at how long since we're talking about multiple markers, I, I look at how long I've been utilizing them. And, you know, I don't want to say jamming it down people's throats, but I just kept saying, okay, guys, this is this is good stuff. This is good stuff. And some of my uh, my colleagues around are still not still not getting into it with their behavior cases, but that's okay. I think it'll they'll come around. But I first got into it, and it it did come primarily from shade for me. However, there are uh, the two pioneers that I know of that influenced even shade. I do believe were Chad and Sarah from Posse Dog up in Ohio. Cannot do this without thanking them. Uh, and of course, Shade and Sarah Bruski and Sarah Stremming and all of those people. Um, and back then I, I was doing sports. I actually had a sport dog and my husband had a bite sport dog. And that's where this really originated was to create clarity. Because if you're not going to use force to get a dog to out, getting them to bite's easy. <laughs> getting them to out's the hard part that's where that started for us. And of course, Bob brought it home. I started going to some of the stuff, even the bite sports stuff, even though I wasn't doing it, it was, it was fun to watch and, and certainly fun to learn. And what I realized after seeing all of these, not just bite sports, but even agility and obedience and rally, rally was my thing back then. I started to realize that some of these sport dogs remind me a lot of my behavior cases. Some yeah. of them are crazy. I live with a few crazies, uh, uh, but I started to realize that um, there was there were a lot of similarities, and that if clarity for the sport dog could be beneficial, I really thought it might help the behavior yeah, cases. Yeah, well. I really like the parallel you draw between sports dogs and behavior cases, because in both cases we're dealing with really high arousal a lot of the time, and Correct. that usually leads to a dog who has trouble thinking clearly. And if we make our communication clearer, then the dog may be able to go back into a thinking state of mind, be able to learn, process the environment. In both situations, if we want to train, for example, bite sports without using aversives, we need a lot of clarity. We need the dog to know Correct. when and how they can earn that bite. And that they can earn that bite. And maybe that if they out, they'll earn a different bite from the toy in my hand. Exactly. I feel like it actually really does translate very well into a dog who might be highly aroused because like I keep thinking in your dogs with big feelings conference, I had this aha moment because you told that story about your border collie who used to chase cars you already had him on a multiple marker cue system. And I think you tried using a scatter or treat from hand cue. 
and he couldn't do it because he was watching cars and he wanted to chase the car. And then you told him to chase a thrown tree. And he was like, oh, I can do that. If I can't chase the car, I can chase the tree. Exactly. I think the same day or the next day, I was out with my dog and walking past a flock of sheep. And she would have liked to take a nibble. And when, when that just comes up in everyday life, I usually go to look at that. So I increased the distance as much as I could. And then there was a fence behind me, so I couldn't go any further. And so far, like I used look at that a lot and lots of CU games, especially look at that is a go-to for me. And so far I've only ever clicked or well, marked with a food from hand marker. In my case, it's usually a tongue click. And I've never had the idea that I could use anything else for that. That just, it just never crossed my mind. Even though now it seems like so, of course, you could use something else for that. So I clicked as Game looked at the sheep and Game just kept looking at the sheep because she's like, I, yeah, she did not have time to eat. She would have wanted to, like she wasn't going after the sheep, but that's what she wanted in that situation. Um, she didn't think eating thoughts. And then I thought of your presentation and the story with Dempsey and I marked with my get it cue, which means chase a toss treat. And immediately she stopped looking and chased that treat. And then I let her look again, chase another treat, look, chase, look, chase. And suddenly I was playing look at that with chasing treats. And after yeah. a few reps of that, I could go into look at that with treats from my hand. And then eventually, so what usually happens with look at that, at least with my dog, she, so we talk about the environment in the context of that game. And at some point she'll just keep eye contact on me. And that's right. how I know she is ready to move on. And then I usually do a scatter to bring her back down and then we move on. And yes. yeah, and so we got to that point, like I've already done the scatter post look at that. I do scatters all the time. And even when working with reactive dogs or pet dogs, I usually, what I've done for a long time is use a room service marker and, mm -hmm. a, and some uh, click or food from hand marker. Like the other one's usually more generic. And for some cases I've used things like, like for dogs wanna jump up, um, a specific marker that means the food is gonna be placed on the floor to encourage head down thoughts rather yes. than head up thoughts. But you're watching that presentation and then seeing that difference in my own dog just really made me realize, wow, I'm totally underutilizing the power of this. I need to do more of this. I want to talk and, and to you. I want to hear about it more. I want to learn about I'm this more. I'm so excited that you, you were able to do that. Now, the only problem is you didn't get it on video. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I went back, like, actually, I actually went back the next day because I wanted to take video and the sheep were gone. <laughs> Oh, bummer. Oh, bummer. Well, believe me, I, I definitely have the car issue or the, I definitely have the cars that I can go back to, but the thing is I don't need to anymore. Right. But I did take about a year to eliminate the access to cars so that he couldn't practice. I mean, right. Practice makes perfect. Or like Bob Bailey loves to say is perfect practice makes perfect. Um, so I just managed him a lot as much as I could. Obviously, he was never loose in the front yard to go chase cars. And I knew that his value was more for toys than it was for food. But it takes a lot of 
training to teach a dog how to play with you. And so, you know, I took the time that it took because I knew even in an hierarchy of marker cues, toys were more valuable than food. And if I needed to go up a notch, I needed to have not only clarity, but I needed a dog that was willing to play that game with me. And that took me a little while to create because he literally had been living in a pen for the first 10 months of his life no human contact. So he wanted nothing to do with people. And I had to kind of earn that and show him that we could play together. But it really, you know, like fetching a toy is very much like chasing a treat, other than to continue the game with a toy, you got to have a dog that's going to bring it back so you can do it again, versus just swallow the treat. So I have found a lot of my reactive dogs, if I can put even some basic cooperative toy play in place, if they're so inclined, not every one of my behavior cases obviously wants anything to do with a toy, but I work with so many resource guarders or dogs that don't want to play with you or be with you, that if I teach them just the cooperation of a fetch game, the relationship changes remarkably. And then the use of the food markers is even more valuable. The arousal is less typically with food, unless it's my Labrador. Uh, I mean, he's going to chase anything that he can eat. Uh, Chasing toys isn't such his thing. But using both is a plus. And I never, ever would have been able to do that had I not had the experience with the sport dogs and the, you know, the pioneers there, the Shades and the Chads and the Sarahs and the Sarahs and the Sarahs. There's nothing but Sarahs in the sport world, it seems like. What's up with all the Sarahs? (laughs) And they're all remarkably brilliant. I know. If I ever have a kid, I already know what their name's going to be. Of of course, it's got to be Sarah. Uh, But but this all started for me as a behavioral situation when I got a dog who had been training for a couple of years and it had been clicker training, right? It knew what a clicker was. And the first time I got him out, he was, a, of course, he was a herding dog. He was a healer. And I clicked and this little guy's head exploded. He was just like, I don't know, where's the food coming from? Uh, should I look? I'm looking at your hands. I'm looking at the ground. I'm like ready to run. And I went, oh, wow, this guy's fun for starters. Um, but he really was confused about what the click meant. So I ditched the clicker and I just went to a verbal marker and I was very clear, you know, verbal marker. I use the word, yep. Thank you, Sarah Strumming. Uh, I use the word yip most of the time or yes. And that means food from hand. And then scatters for him. Uh, wasn't a hugely foodie dog at that point. So obviously the, the get it or the toss, being a herding dog, guess what? They like to chase things. And I have to admit, the toss or get it marker cue, the chase food marker cue tends to be the most important when I'm working with a herding dog. Go figure. I want movement. So if I put movement on cue, and then of course I have to have that loop. I go eat food, but I come back and the dog goes, can you do it again? And I get that loop. And that's actually one of the first things I teach with a multiple marker system. 
I think shade calls it a marker cue test or ready to work. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of changed it to a marker cue loop versus a test. Although I use it as a test, you know, the first thing I do is I want my dog or my student's dog to be able to eat food. And then if they need to scan the environment, fine, they can scan the environment. Then I'm going to offer food again, and I'm going to keep offering them food. Typically I offer the food in the way that they can most readily respond. Like I say, herding dogs, it might be a toss. Yeah. I think in my current reactive class, I have five dogs, four of which are herding dogs. And one of them is a retriever. And so four of them are using toss as their favorite marker cue, right? The one that really gets the dog going, oh my God, yes, I can hear you when you say that word. But if you say scatter or the clicker, or yes, I can't hear you because it doesn't have the same value, even though it's the same food. And what I find so funny is this, in 2019, I was asked to present at a relatively large conference because I presented in 2018 and I wanted to present about this concept. And I was told that, oh, no, 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 no. Clickers are not cues. Clickers don't cue anything. They just mark behavior. And I went, well, actually eating is a behavior. And oh, no, 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 no. That's not a topic that we need to talk about. It has nothing to do with behavior. That was like, I think, fall of 2019. And then 2020 rolled around and it was Orca. I have been doing it since like 2017. I've been doing multi-part. In 2020, in January, is the Art and Science of Animal Training with UNT with Jesus Rosales Rios and his and that amazing group of all the Karen Pryor people. And I was elated when the people on the stage started talking about eating as a behavior. And I'll never forget, Hannah Brannigan talked about it. Um, Barbara Heidenreich, oh, she did a lovely presentation. I think it was with hyenas, I can't remember, but how she actually used different ways to feed the animals to get different behaviors. And I went, yes, this is what we should be doing with behavior cases. But you know, five months prior to that, I was told, yeah, it's irrelevant. And um, yeah, oh well, uh, they missed out. Uh, but uh, hopefully at some point in time, I'll be able to present it at that big conference again, that behavior conference that Shago I named. Um, but um, anyway, I, I started out with that, that one little healer is when the big light bulbs came on because this poor dog was just so confused. And when I started putting a cue to thrown food, you could almost see the tension just evaporate because he needed to move. But I mean, the movement for him was actually a release. And I used the release cue or the toss cue, the thrown food cue for so many different reasons, not only to activate, I'm going to use that word, activate a shy or kind of shut down dog. Because let's face it, all dogs should have some sort of prey drive in them. Maybe the livestock guarding dogs don't, but most dogs want to chase something. And so if I can roll the food and it moves and it catches their eye, sometimes that little spark hits and they go, whoa, 
And so I can take some of those shy dogs and just start rolling food on the ground. And pretty soon they're moving and running and you could just see their tail wagging and their ears are forward. And all of a sudden I have a dog now. And then they're like anticipating that next throw. They make eye contact and I say toss and I throw the food and they're like, oh my God, now I have to make eye contact before you throw the food. Do you see how excited I get? Oh my God, I love it. And then I have the dogs that are so pressure sensitive, you know, they can take four pieces of food from my hand, but oh my God, they're like, okay, I need a break. Can you just give me some, some room? They're too pressure sensitive. So I can relieve the pressure by marking a behavior and throwing the food away. So the toss, even though it's exciting for some dogs, it can actually be uh, emotional release for them to kind of go, take a break. And even the scatter, I saw a study that just came out about how sniffing really affects the brain. And I've been, I've been dumbing it down for years and saying that, you know, dogs that uh, are eating food on the ground, they can't visually see it. Well, there's, especially there's some breeds that can't see anything on the ground. Uh, but if you scatter food on the ground, the dog is literally going to have to go, there's one, there's another one, there's not another one. So obviously it happens a lot faster than that. But what they're doing is they're using their seeking system. Again, I'm being kind of, uh, I, I don't know the technical stuff. I'm not as nerdy as some of your guests, I'm sure. Um, but I see that influence the seeking system, which from what I remember and know is part of the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is the thinking part of the brain. Thinking is a whole lot better than being emotional. Because if you're thinking, you're not as emotional. If you're emotional, you can't think. So you can change emotions just by getting the dog to eat food and to sniff to find it. And I think this is one of the biggest reasons that the sport of nose work is so popular. You know, my husband and I have been doing nose work in the real world for years. Narcotics, arson, termite. We trained probably the first peanut allergy alert dog in Texas. I can't even remember what year that was. It's a long time ago. Even before marker cues, uh, we may have been using them, but we didn't know what we were doing with them. <laughs> we didn't know the real effects of them. Um, but, um, you know, so we saw the detection dogs, of course, are working dogs or working dogs and they're crazy. And most people don't want to live with those dogs. But I saw even dogs that we would evaluate for search and rescue or some type of job. And they hadn't been taught to use their nose yet. I mean, they all do to a certain degree, but some dogs, you know, don't have that ability. In fact, my husband's last USAR dog, his lifelike dog, she hunted for over three minutes on the pile during her assessment, but she could never pinpoint where it was. So what they were looking for was persistency, right? You know, you can teach the dog to find this stuff, but the fact that she had the drive to keep going and going and going and going. So those are the kinds of dogs we're working with. But what we found that, and she was kind of an anxious dog, kind of a, she was actually kind of a nervous wreck. She was a little black lab mix rescue and uh, very, very drivey, uh, but, but nervous. Weird things would startle her, like the fan in the living room would be on one day and we'd shut it off the next and she'd come in the living room and go oh my god the fan's not moving today she was just she was just weird 
but if she was hunting, if she was using her nose, oh, honey, I mean, we're talking jackhammers, backhoes, piles of rubble, rebar everywhere. She was solid because she was doing her job and that was, was sniffing. And I think part of that was because that was utilizing that prefrontal cortex. So all the emotions went bye-bye. And again, hence the reason I like scatter a lot. And I think nose work is so so great for dogs and I'm so thrilled that there are so many venues for people to do that it's funny my husband and I have never gotten into that sport because we're kind of like okay we did it for so many years for real I'm not sure I could do it for fun I I don't know we'll have to explore that later in the future maybe yeah I like I like to think of nose work or scatters like kind of this moment of meditation for the dog gorgeous yes it, it is. And sometimes you can see the dogs, it, like they're starting to get a little bit, their response is, is getting a little delayed. Even like, look at that, because we, I think we all use look at that a lot. And the dog might be responding to your clicker or your feed to the mouth cue, but you can see them, maybe they start taking the food a little too hard or they start fumbling with it in their mouth a little bit. So you're starting to see signs of stress. And then I go, okay, well, let's do a scatter instead. And it's almost like they go, oh, thank God you gave me a minute. Yeah. And, And that, I think that word meditation is brilliant. I'm stealing that, Chrissy. I'm sure I did not come up with it, but I cannot remember where I heard it. I mean, seriously, is anything new? I think we borrow stuff from everybody anyway. It may have been Leslie McDevitt. Wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I've been using the scatter during the look at that for at least a couple, three, four years, probably. Just because sometimes there were dogs that couldn't take food from my hand, you know, that was almost a little too confrontational at that moment because the dog was already stressed. So that's where we go, okay, well, can you chase food? And some dogs that don't like to chase food go, no, not really. So, you know, can you eat a scatter? And like I say, that's kind of the first thing I test is A, can you eat? And after you eat, can you acknowledge my existence so that I can mark that attention and give you a cue to eat again? And can you create some sort of a loop? Mm -hmm. And I normally tell people to start with your dog's favorite. There are some dogs, like I said, in my class right now, I've got most of them tosses are their favorite. But you have to make sure that as the dog chases that cookie and moves two to three feet away from you, that it can come back without going to the end of the leash or to that distance and going, okay, wait a minute, I'm all alone. And okay, there's still lions and tigers and bears out here. Sometimes you can even mark the look at that, right? With a toss the other direction. And I do a lot of left-right tosses, but I want to start with one where they can eat and eventually make that loop of eye contact. I mark, they eat again. Then I change marker cues. I go, okay, you're doing it with this marker cue. Can I make it a little bit more difficult? Can you do it with a different marker? And then I change to another marker. I normally just do two or three markers during that looping test. But again, I'm just wanting that dog to, I use the term rectified. I have rectified the environment at this point. Even if there's no specific triggers, I want the dog to be able to look around. Absolutely, the dogs need to look at their environment. 
but then that they have rectified it and gone, okay, I'm, I'm good enough now. I'm connected with you. Let's do this thing. And periodically, if somebody has to walk their dog or they're taking their dog for a walk, I recommend, okay, we're going to go half a block and you're going to uh, do a marker cue loop again. I worked with a five-year-old golden retriever who's been barking and lunging at dogs all his life the other day. And he was brilliant. Of course, he's a golden, had high value food. And uh, he's like, oh my God, did you see that dog over there? I really want to bark at that. And I went scatter. And he probably heard the word scatter maybe 20 times by that time. And he immediately head spun around to me and ate the food and kind of glanced back over at the dog and looked back at me and went, I can do this again. You got some more. And the owner was like, oh my God, it seems so simple to those of us in the know. And she had been using a verbal marker. Yes. And I tried. Yes. And he went, yeah, not a <laughs> one cookie ain't worth it, but fine darn straight I can do that absolutely yeah so I love it as you couldn't tell it's fascinating to me and I'm even getting back into teaching a sport class for the the remaining of the year I'm going to teach a couple of rally classes and of course guess what I'll probably be teaching uh, just to, to get focus right I want the dogs to be able to make a focus loop that's all it is just offer eye contact I mean you kind of have to have connection before you walk into a ring Another thing I like about utilizing multiple markers is you can literally get into stimulus control with multiple markers. Oh, this is probably my favorite thing. I don't care if my dog can sit and down and do all that fun stuff, but Jesus, if I throw a toy and I didn't say fetch, damn it, don't go get it. Listen to me. If I say strike, you take the toy, not the toy that I just threw. You know, those are fun things. There's a bowl of food over there, but if I click, you better come to the food in my hand. Or if I scatter, you better eat that and not the food in the bowl. And it just creates such a thinking dog. Not all of my dogs need this or can do this that I work with. Kind of have to have the right clientele to put in that kind of work. But for me, there's just nothing more satisfying than the dog that's looking at you going, okay, you said scatter, even though you presented your hand like a trick and there's a bowl of food over there and you said scatter. So I'm going to eat the food on the floor and not the one that's closer out of your hand and not the bowl of food that's got a, a whole bowl. You can just see their wheels turning. And again, what does this go back to? A thinking dog is not an emotional dog. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, me too. I just love doing that for fun too, because it makes me feel like we're developing this common vocabulary and it just keeps growing with every marker cue I add to it. Yeah. And once you have like all these marker cues, you can sneak in other behavioral cues and just teach them yes. by means of the marker cues that are already in place. So you have that structure and then you fill it in with other little things. Yes. It feels the same way I felt when I first learned about shaping. Yes. I was like, holy shit. It's like this whole new level of communication. Yes. This epiphany, right? Oh my God. It's like, look what we are doing together. That's one thing. We have such a connection. Yeah. I have two dogs right now that I've kind of been working with. I don't do anything specifically, but I dabbled with marker cues. That's about all most both of them know. 
but I think that's fun. I mean, my God, when I threw a toy, I did a demo the other day and, you know, I threw a toy, my dog went, there it goes, but you didn't say fetch, so I shouldn't go get it. And then I said strike and he came to my toy. And then I said behind, which is go get the dead toy behind. He left the strike tongue toy and went to that toy and then brought it to him. Anyway, I just love it. It's just so much fun. My dogs don't know shit for behavior cues, but they sure know a lot of marker cues. I love that too. And I like also going back and forth between food and toys and yes. having multiple ones around at the same time. Yes. And I also think it teaches the skill of cue discrimination. Yes. So if you later teach other skills and other cues, your dog will already have an advantage. If you start out this way, they will already know to listen. Not only that you're saying something or the order of events, that tends to be maybe in a particular order always. Yes. But they already know to listen to the content of that phrase or marker word you're saying. And that's that clarity, you know, and it's concept, right? Learning to listen is kind of a concept. I would attribute Sarah Bruski for utilizing, she's the most concept training, brilliant trainer I know. And I think that is a concept, kind of like, you know, impulse control is a concept, but stimulus control is also a concept. Listen, do what I say, not what you want to do. Yes. That starts with marker cues. And like you say, you can utilize the marker cues to build that knowledge and that connection so that the dog is actually listening. I just, oh, I geek out on it all the time. Yeah, it is a brilliant foundation. You start a puppy, you don't have to train behaviors. You just train a really nice marker cue system and everything will follow. I have a two and a half year old. I still call him my puppy. And I really started dabbling with different marker cues in the sport of tri-ball. I've never done tri-ball before. And I took Melissa Browse workshops and her course, and she's amazing to teach it. And of course, I, I did what I did for the class and haven't done anything since. But One of the concepts I was toying with were just thrown cookies. And I ended up having two different marker cues. Toss meant go forward to get the thrown treat. Mm -hmm. And search was to turn around and go get the one behind you. So I could help position him behind the ball so much easier by the way I reinforced him. And pretty soon he'd go behind the ball. He was a little too close. So I'd say search and he'd turn around and go get the food that I threw. And pretty soon, of course, what happens? The tendency is that he stays further back behind the ball instead of wanting to push it prematurely. And to me, that's one of the things that I think is the most important part of multiple markers. You can counter tendencies. If your dog's tendency is to be jumpy, feed low. If it's to sniff a lot, maybe throw. You know, you counter their specific tendency by the way you feed them. I'm working with this little wire-haired pity right now. I adore him. He's a rescue and uh, he's just a little project I've got. He's like a toad. I don't think he walks anywhere. He hops everywhere he goes. His front feet never are on the ground except to come back up again. So I have done lots of drops with him. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, that's kind of pointless to jump up because the food's always on the ground. So you know what? Maybe I should just like keep my feet on the ground. It's a lot less energy expenditure. You know, again, his tendency is to bounce. So I fed low. Yeah. On the one hand, 
you can counter tendencies. And on the other hand, you can manipulate arousal levels. Yes. And both of these are so relevant to behavioral cases. Yeah. But let me ask you something. I teach a reinforcement class at FDSA and my classes, every time I run them, they change because I learn new things. So I add in more and change stuff around. And one of my first lectures in this class talks about the fact that we should look at reinforcers as behaviors rather than things. So we shouldn't look at the ball or the cookie, but at the behavior of fetching or the behavior of eating. Correct. And the FDSA students I get tend to be nerdy people, but even they sometimes struggle to wrap their head around that. And when I work with people in real life, those are usually pet dog owners right. who are not as nerdy, who have even more of a hard time understanding things like that. So I often end up just simplifying things and keeping, okay, one or two marker cues, that's what we'll do for you because they have never heard of that concept at all before. Have you found a way to make people understand what you're saying when you're explaining to them for example, your conference experience where you wanted to present on marker cues as behavioral cues. And the response initially was, but no, a click is not a, is not a cue. But of course it is. Once you see it that way, you can't unsee it. And it is very straightforward and absolutely crystal clear. But if someone hasn't seen that yet, Somehow it seems to be really difficult to understand. What's your best way of explaining this to someone? I typically start with just explaining one or two, right? We keep it simple. And I start with the ones that are going to be most valuable for that client, which tends to be either the scatter, which I call arousal lowering. My clicker is what I would call baseline and toss is mm -hmm. arousing, right? So there's three levels and I kind of talk about it in the way of countering tendencies. Okay. Your dog is getting real excited. What happens when you put five pieces of food on the floor? He slows down to eat. Okay, cool. He slows down. That's what we want. We want your dog to slow down. Your dog is kind of sluggish and you know, he's a little calorie, he's slinky, you want him to move a little bit smoother, what are you going to do? Throw food. So again, I use that look at the dog because that's just it. It's all about observing your dog to determine which marker cue you use. And even sometimes like my Labrador, if I scatter, I'm not so sure that's calming. He's going, oh my God, five pieces of food. Holy shit. Yes, that's very exciting. So for him, a scatter mm, may not be something that's going to slow him down. I may have to even tweak the scatter to be a totally different delivery system of instead of scattering and there's five pieces like on a dinner plate. It might be scatter and I slow my intonation down and I slow my delivery down and I reach into the bait bag and I go, there's one, there's another, there's another. And I kind of do it in a line. Oftentimes I end up finding myself drawing a star 
know everybody draws stars differently. I start at bottom left and I go to the top, then I go to bottom right, then I go to the left, and then I go to the right, and then I go back and I make the connection at the bottom right or bottom left. Anyway, that's how I draw a star. And sometimes that's what I'm doing with the food. And it's not just about the food, it's about our emotions that we can give to the dog as well. I've got a client right now, the one with the retriever in class. She's very quick, right? She's just, she's just that person. Scatter. I'm like, okay, Melissa, honey, you got to slow it down. I said, your dog is a lab. He's going to inhale that. You can help him slow down by you slowing down. So sometimes it's a matter of helping the client see what they want their dog to be and how that particular marker cue, the way they eat, can affect that behavior and how they as a person can slow down or speed up. I rarely have anybody that needs to speed up. But again, I think working on the mechanics of it, Jesus, I think mechanics are really important for some dogs. Some dogs, not so much maybe, but for some dogs, it makes it so black and white and that helps I have this silly saying, I have no idea how accurate it is. Knowledge is power. Power builds confidence and confidence reduces anxiety. So when your dog knows, oh, scatter, she's going to bring food down and uh, I'm going to eat a lot of food. Whew, that makes me feel pretty cool. Or the click means, oh, I need to look at which hand is moving to go get the food and I'm going to go to that one. So again, that cue, and, and I say it, it's a marker cue. Sit is a behavior cue. Click is a marker cue. It marks a behavior, but it also cues your dog to eat. And your dog can eat in multiple ways. Sometimes I go into this. You have a teenager, right? You have a kid. How do they eat when they're getting ready to go out with friends, right? You've got dinner served and they just shovel it in as fast as they can. They're all excited. They're, they're ready to go out and play with their buddies. So they shovel their food in. So how would you counter that tendency? I, I don't know with, with teenagers, maybe you would give them something that they have to chew a lot. Oh, that's something even I have explored. I had one client who had a uh, Aussie and we could slow the dog down even more based on the type of food we scattered. If it was crunchy, guess what happened? The dog actually took time to chew, which again, helped to lower that arousal versus, uh, oh my God, this semi-moist stuff, I can just inhale it. So even getting the right treats to use or food, I rarely use treats. I just use high value dog food. I found that with some dogs, if they chew, uh, and this was kind of that dog that, you know, he's just like, okay, well, there's one. Well, there's another one. And I think part of it was he needed the time it took. And we were able to provide that with just the food that gave him the time to slow down. I remember uh, another Melissa. Uh, I remember looking at her going, oh, my God, what food are you using today? And uh, she told me what it was. I said, I think it was real meat. So it was a little jerky type stuff. And I said, that's not what you were using last week. And she went, no, it wasn't. And I said, do you see a different dog this week? And she went, oh my God. Yeah. I said, he's taking longer to do a scatter because he's having to chew. It was fascinating. So, I mean, not just eating the way we present it, but what we present 
can modify behavior and arousal. Yeah. Right? My own dog, I usually use kibble for everything because she knows her marker cues. She knows to take the food. She likes eating. She likes doing things for me. She would eat cardboard if I offered her cardboard. But sometimes I work with dogs who start out just not taking kibble. Yes. And sometimes it's a small dog. Mm-hmm. So the owner is concerned about using lots of super high value treats because they want the dog to have a somewhat balanced diet. Sure. And we're training a lot. And if I use cheese and it's a chihuahua, well, <laughs> then all that chihuahua is going to eat for that day is cheese. Right, right. I feel like by being clear in our communication of how and where and when the food is going to show up, the dogs develop a habit first. And you can develop that habit with cheese, for example. And then you can start plugging in lower value foods into that same already established habit of eating on cue. Exactly. Just like you can generalize the behavior of healing. For example, you start in your living room, there are no distractions, but you wouldn't expect your dog to be able to heal at a Mondial Ring trial when you've only ever trained in your living room. Right. But after lots of training in different environments, slowly, slowly increasing criteria, you can do that trial and the dog will still know how to heal. And the same goes for eating because it is a behavior. Yes. Dogs can learn to eat in different environments and they can learn to eat different foods in different environments. I think it is still reinforcing, especially when we're working on behavior cases, If the dog initially didn't take the kibble out and about or didn't take whatever other treat you wanted to give them out and about, you can work up to this because as you're working up to this, the dog just becomes clearer minded in general. Their arousal goes down and their ability to eat and to think, and yeah, that's pretty good, just goes up. I think there's a brilliant trainer out there, Kathy Sedeo, who actually presents about eating as a behavior, right? I mean, talking about picky eaters. I love her webinar that she has done and I think is doing again soon about dogs being picky eaters and how we can teach them to eat. I've got a dog right now who's on one of those hydrolyzed diets. You know, she's a a little black boxer. She's got major gut issues. And so I literally am having to use her canned food, right, to teach. In the beginning, we have kibble and we have canned food that the owners baked into the little pyramid treats. And then we have the canned food. And in the beginning, she could only take the canned. And just yesterday, I started out in the environment that I had been in the day before where she couldn't eat the kibble or the baked treats. And I cued toss which is to chase the cookie and she likes to pounce on things. And I threw the pyramid treat, the baked one, and she ran after it and ate it. And I think she kind of went, well, that's not what I was expecting, but okay, that's cool. So I'm hoping eventually that I can actually use that hydrolyzed kibble crap for her to train because training with canned food, as you can well imagine, is not a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's messy. (laughs) It's messy and it is hard to toss because sometimes it falls apart or it's really hard to scatter, but it's actually going better than I anticipated it would. I've also utilized just teaching the dog the difference between eat food out of my hand, come to my hand and stay in position. I'll bring it to you. I have used a lot of squeeze tubes you know, squeeze cheese type stuff. I use a lot of cosmetic tubes, the silicone tubes, and I put a 
whatever they like in there and uh, use that. And it's so fun to watch them. If I say good, that's my generic room service marker, good or face, they kind of go, oh, yep, you're bringing it to me. So number one is they learned something. They learned not to move to my hand. And that's learning. And I don't give a shit if it's a sit or a down. I just want the dog to be able to learn. So just seeing this little black boxer who's got this canned food and she's got her head on a swivel because she's worried about life would really benefit from meds. To see her when she does offer a sit and I say good and she just is stationary. She's like, well, bring it. And then when I click, she goes, oh, I'm coming. And when I say talk, she's like, where? This is so exciting. So to see her be able to do that and have learned those things, my goal, of course, is that I can say those words and she's going to eat kibble instead of canned food. That's, that's where we're going. But like you said, that's generalization. Yeah. And I would think that generalization is generalization, whether it's type of food or location, we're changing locations just by changing marker cues. Yeah. And, you know, that is something that I put in my webinar, which I actually, hopefully by the time this airs, I will have done my workshop for Fenzy. I'm scheduled to do a workshop. I just have to have time to write it. Ah, excellent. Go figure. It's going to be about multiple marker cues for behavior. Shock. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was just gonna say, you have to teach something about that. You have to teach that online so people from all over the place can access it, not only people in Texas or Tennessee. Yes. A workshop would be perfect for that because people can get feedback. Yes. Which they can't get in a webinar. Right. Because really the thing is with something like that, in the webinar, people will listen to it and they may go, oh, okay, that sounds neat, but I have never done that. Maybe that's unnecessary for me. But if it's a workshop, they'll be motivated to go out there and give it a try. And try, yes. And then they will have that light bulb moment. Yeah, and I teach my reactive integration group class online through Facebook of all places. Facebook has a social learning platform. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah. And of course, I started this when COVID hit and basically, you know, the world is shut down and I have no job because I'm self-employed and I'm a dog trainer, but I couldn't leave the house. So I went, okay, what can I do? And I created some content and put it online. The first one I did was settle, which was basically my relaxation type behavior that I teach, which of course I utilize multiple markers in it. Go figure. And I started to teach my reactive integration class and a big portion of that obviously will be marker cues and understanding multiple marker cues. The last class I taught, I have a student who has a standard poodle. He was doing dock diving and he was so crazy going to the dock. She had to pull him. She couldn't do anything. And she took my class and she already competed with her other dog in rally and agility. And she wasn't a sloppy trainer at all. But this dog was just dog reactive and he was just so over aroused by the dog and, and doing his job. So she took him to a smaller, like fun match. And she says, oh my God, those marker cues. I would basically do the marker cue loop and then I'd move 10 feet closer and I'd do a marker cue loop and then I'd move 10 feet closer. And she says, you know what? It worked. And now she's trialing. In fact, I think she's like the top 10 poodle. Wow. And dog diving. That's amazing. And oh, I'm going to get teary-eyed. I hope she doesn't mind. The dog's name is Dub, D-U-B-H. And it's a black standard poodle. I just freaking love that 
she already had all the behaviors, but it wasn't about the behavior of sits and downs and all that other stuff in that context. She literally was moving closer and closer and closer to the dog and creating that connection and keeping that connection in that loop and keeping the arousal in check and going closer to the dock and then closer to the dock. But she was keeping that arousal. And she said he was so much more clear headed when he got up there. She didn't have to force him to wait. And it was just like, oh, my God. Thank you, Sandra. But yeah, that was it works. Some people, if they just did nothing but marker cues on their walk occasionally, they'd be fine. They don't have to teach loosely walking. Just occasionally do some marker cued loops and they'd be fine. Yeah. That would be another great webinar topic. Oh, it would be. Yeah. The marker cue method of loosely walking. My God. Oh, you just gave me a good thought because. I darn sure don't want to take a dog for a walk and have them look like they're healing. I think that's just ridiculous. Dogs don't want to walk that way. They want to sniff. They want to explore. But there are times, obviously, when we need that connection to get past that scary dog or to go across the street or whatever. So with this little dog, I actually taught him a marker cue that my husband used with his bite sport dog. Of course, he was using toys and he called it tush. And he presented the toy behind his back on his butt. And that's when the dog is healing. And he'd say, tush, the dog would run behind him and grab the toy because he was presenting it with his opposite hand. And I started to teach that with this little guy with food. Of course, what am I doing? I'm countering tendency. The tendency is to go in front. So I'm feeding behind and I'm putting that on cue. Oh my God, guess what? I started to get this dog that was like, waiting for me to say tush so he was hanging closer behind my butt which he meant he wasn't dragging me anywhere it was pretty brilliant but i did steal the word tush from my husband so he, he gets credit for that one for sure actually i'm currently a gold student in nicole Weebush's healing class at fdsa and she also uses tush for food in that same way you describe nice i don't know if they got it from each other or there's a common source to both of them <laughs> I don't know. Bob, my husband, probably got it from Sarah up at Posse Dog or Sarah and Chad, I'm guessing. But I know there was somebody who was using the word behind, which of course behind could also be tush, right? Yeah. I mean, a behind is a tush. But anyway, I don't know. It, it was just kind of fun to say. I have no idea who started it. I can't give credit to anybody. So I'm going to give credit to my husband because I stole it from him. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know who he stole it from. But I think that's another thing. Nobody came up with this. There's really nothing new in the science of dog training, unless we're doing more research, then obviously we start finding new things, but we all have the same information. Yeah. It's just a matter of tweaking it and applying it in different contexts or in different concepts. And that's one of the things, you know, yeah, you called me a pioneer in multiple marker cues for behavior. Yeah, I've been doing it for probably at least four or five years, at least. But then again, I go, yep, I'm just glad somebody's getting the word out. And I really appreciate that you invited me to do this and that I was allowed to do the webinar for Fenzi and uh, will be doing the workshop and have implemented it online with my classes. I do think it is a huge integral part of my reactive integration class. It's amazing. I know a lot of people that teach reactivity. First lesson, let's take the dog outside and see what happens. And let's do, look at that. 
click the trigger, whatever you want to call it, look at that, engage, disengage. And I go, wow, how about we build some foundation first? We do foundation with sport dogs. I would never take my dog in the ring without having some of these foundations. Why would you take your dog out to train it outside around its triggers without this kind of foundation? Exactly. These real world behaviors we expect our dogs to just do, they're really hard. I mean, they're hard for an average dog. They are. They're even harder if your dog is already struggling. Yes. You can't expect the dog to just do well without laying a foundation. Right. And again, this goes back to my knowledge is power. Power builds confidence. Confidence reduces anxiety. It gives them confidence, right? I mean, in all honesty, if you want to look at it, it's almost behavioral momentum. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Look what I did. Hot damn. I am so damn good at this. I knew exactly what she said. I did exactly what she told me to do. And look at me. I can do anything. And that confidence. Then you go out the front door and the dog goes, hey, wait a minute. You said scatter. Yep, I can do that. I did that inside. Now I can do it outside. Look at me. And then they're not so worried about the world. And oh, my God, do you see just how excited I get about this? Oh, anyway. Yeah. It's like you're teaching a language and then you're sending the user out into the world to actually apply the language. But if you like put me somewhere into China or Japan and I was surrounded by all these characters that I couldn't read, I'd be lost. But if at first you put me in a classroom and you taught me in a nice, calm environment what these things mean, and then you let me go travel there, I would be able to make sense of the world. I'll be able to use the subway there and read where it's going. Right. I love your analogy of it being a language. Oh my God, that's wonderful. And I rarely, I mean, I do a lot of behavioral consults and people are like, well, do you want to go see my dog react? I'm like, I'm really, number one, I really don't need to get bit when I come in the house. Number two, then don't need to see that. No more than an alcoholic needs to be drunk for the therapist to be able to help them. I rarely go out on a walk. So when I did this client earlier this week and we actually went outside, it was after two hours of working with the dog and having fun and talking about all the things and explaining to her and getting her mechanics on board before we went outside. And granted, she was working with a five-year-old golden. He was extremely food motivated. So I, I knew I had something to work with and she already had a marker cue. Yes. Installed. And I just added the scatter, which she ended up being a hundred percent more reliable with you know, by the time we were outside anyway, but, uh, we have to have that foundation. And, you know, when I left, she says, okay, so what's my homework? I said, well, I'll write it all up. But the first thing are, we're going to create these marker cues so that when you say the word scatter, if he's in another room, he runs to you and goes, pay me bitch, right? Where's the food? Where's the beef? And if you say yes, his head snaps around and he goes, where is it? He was a five-year-old golden. And I was on their ground floor. I need to start asking my clients what color of floor they have so I can bring alternate colored treats. I air dry cheese a lot. I take a mozzarella cheese stick and just cut it into 22 little slices or 44 if I want little ones. And I lay it on a sheet cake pan and I air dry it for about 24 hours in the refrigerator, flip it over another 12 hours. And I have these white treats that look great on the brown floor, but I have brown food on her brown floor, but I made sure that he could track it. And he's a golden, he's not a doodle, so he's not blind. So he could track the treats that I was throwing 
and you could just see him his body was excited and this is a dog that doesn't like to go out in the backyard by himself i said you know what that's where i want you to practice this after the kitchen and the living room and the bedroom i want you to go out and do some toss treats outside on the uh the patio this might actually influence his emotions about being outside in the backyard i didn't need that one on a walk i didn't think but i needed it for another reason for that dog toss for him was fun and exciting and he got to move i wanted to use that to make the backyard more fun and exciting for him i didn't need that on the walk because i really the scatter was going to work fine and it seemed to but uh teaching the clients that it is a language i love that you mentioned that its own language and that we have to create a similar language i always tell people i want the dog to communicate to me and not me command them that's one of the words well i think the words i hate the most is the word command my husband has a saying the difference between command and cue is the husband that commands sleeps on the sofa and the husband that cues sleeps with his wife uh, so, <laughs> anyway it's an emotional difference and this is where that whole marker cue loop or test comes into play that the dog is saying hey i want something from you now let's do this together right you can use it to communicate about the environment yes it's not like you're telling them stare at me no don't move your ears you're giving them a chance to look at the environment and then you help them calm down again yes by doing the marker cue test the, or the marker cue loop they are telling you how they feel about the environment mm -hmm. so it's a conversation it's not a command to do something in specific it is you are asking questions the dog is giving you answers right you're saying something is available the dog says all right pay up it's a two-way street yeah and i even use I, i had mentioned settle i teach a basically a relax on a mat it is not go to the mat quick treat go to the mat it's not that it's not arousing i try to keep it as low arousal as possible for all the leash reactive dogs of course i started on leash so that there's a different emotion attached to the leash but what i eventually get to is that i'm going to pay the dog for looking around versus go to the mat and just stare at me right i want the dog to be able to lay there quietly calmly roll on a hip and look at things in the environment so i do a scatter marker cue that means stay in position and i call it dinner dinner and the dog is looking at you know the other dog walking by and he's laying there just doing an alternative behavior right a dra so he looks and i go dinner and he goes oh really now i get paid for looking at the dog and laying here i like this and again it's a calm dinner if i need a dog that wants to check in a little bit or need a dog to check in i'll mark that with my deliver to face marker so you get one good and one cookie to your face if we make eye contact and depending on what the dog needs i end up working with a lot of dogs that have been leave it leave it leave it watch me watch me watch me watch me i don't want a dog to watch me i want a dog to check in and go hey we're good right i feel good enough to check in with you we're good it's a gauge yeah. yeah yeah you can train the dog to watch you watch you watch you but i feel like the walk is for the dog you're taking the dog on a walk so they can 
sniff and check their Facebook status and, and look around, leave their Yelp reviews right. and look around. And P-mail. Yes, for sure. Yeah. 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 A- anyway, I just, I love the multiple marker system. It's just a way to communicate with the dog, to influence the arousal, to help them generalize. And another big thing is it takes time for the handler to implement and to get comfortable with. But there again, it goes back to confidence. You have to have confidence in your handling skills. And there's nothing worse than people are going, oh, I hate taking my dog for a walk. It scares me to death. And I'm a nervous wreck. So if you can teach the client what to do and they get proficient at it, of course, the dog is going to be proficient at it. Yeah. We do a mechanics workshop. God, I love that. I love teaching. In fact, I taught one was the last Sunday, two Sundays ago. I just did a one day and we played with dice. I, you know, it was like, okay, uh, when I put my feet together, I want you to mark it and feed the cup. And it was amazing. The people, some of them did great. And some of them were like, what? But by the end of it, I didn't get their dog out until they could proficiently do it with dice. And so sometimes that's what I do, even in the home. Excellent. I'll go, okay, we're going to put the dog away now. And we're going to practice these three or four marker cues, whatever it is that I feel that client needs. Normally, it's going to be baseline, yes, feed from hand. And it's going to be scatter. And it's probably going to be good because I utilize good for calm behavior putting on harnesses, putting on leashes, going out the doors. Because if you have crazy doing all that, that crazy goes out the front door. But when I say good, the dog goes, bring it to me, sister. That's what I want. I want that dog to go, I'm waiting. Yeah. Because they have to calm themselves down to get me to say that word. I love it. That's such a great point about teaching the handler first. And ideally without the dog, because I mean, when we're training dogs, we're splitting behaviors down into small increments. Yes. We're shaping, we're reinforcing successive approximations. Yes. We need to do the same thing with the human client as well, because it's not fair to overwhelm the human. I'm the world's worst at overwhelming the clients. <laughs> when I leave, I'm probably giving them 15 pages of shit to read. It all has videos, you know, you can read this stuff, but here's the video of what I'm saying and an example of it without a dog. That's one of the first things I teach in my reactive class. No dogs. Here's a bowl of food. Here's a cup for your dog's mouth. (laughs) Here's some kibble. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to practice all of this stuff. It's a fine motor skill. Yeah. If people would just practice it. And I tell people, videotape yourself. I don't have to see it. Your husband doesn't have to see it. Nobody else has to see this. I want you to watch it. The hardest part is that the word predicts the movement. Yes. Yeah. That's probably the hardest thing to teach. But if we have that clarity with the human, that clarity is going to go down to the dog and the dog's going to go, confidence reduces anxiety. Yeah, I love that. Yay. Awesome. That's a great note to end on. And for everyone listening to remember, it's a fine motor skill for the human. And you need that fine motor skill first in order to teach your dog where to expect that treat. Right. It is actually a lot to expect the human to just be able to hear the theory and then implement it and have like these 10 marker cues or whatever. So step by step, start with one, start with two, start without a dog yep. 
And then just as if you were teaching a dog, you teach yourself and then you add the dog into the picture. Yep. And one of the things that's different that I know, I, I remember when Shade Quetzal talked about marker cues in the first Lemonade conference. So that would have been 2020. She talked about, she starts teaching marker cues with food in her hand. And of course, a lot of the, uh, you know, especially the KPA people went, oh my God, blasphemy. You never have food in your hand. Yes, you do. I start all the time with food in my hand, which is even harder for a client. Sometimes we can put the food on a counter and click re-deliver. But if they've got it in their hand, it's hard. So oftentimes I have, they've got food in their hand, but I'm holding their wrist and I don't let them move their hand until after the click has finished clicking, the R has come out of scatter, the S is out of toss. And I honestly have started doing kind of like, okay, say the word, take a breath, move your hand, say the word, take a breath, move your hand and it becomes a three or four step pattern versus that simultaneous and once you have that pause then you can kind of muddy things up yeah and i've seen it go the other way sometimes you can have it really really muddy and then create the pause but again this kind of goes back to that dog each dog is different and you've got those dogs that are mugging that shit out of you and you want clarity with those guys. You literally want, okay, toss one, 1,000, two, 1,000, show it, throw it uh, versus toss, show it, throw it. Right. Because you want to see if the dog is understanding the marker cue. Yes. And you need that pause to see the dog predict where the cue will land. Yes. And if you don't have that pause, you don't know. Right. You don't. And it's no different than saying sit. The dog is thinking about. And then you lure them. Right. You say sit and the dog goes, I'm thinking about it. Here comes my back feet up underneath my stomach and I'm going to put my butt on the ground. Yeah. But if you sit there and go sit, 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 the dog, you know, it's like your computer. You're hitting the escape key all the time. So if you say toss and throw at the same time, the dog is never going to make connection between the word and the thrown food. So there has to be a little bit of that pause, but you can't have the, I call it fiddle farting, a round of toss, open the bait bag, reach in, open the Ziploc bag inside the bait bag. Those are forbidden in my class, by the way, <laughs> uh, Ziploc bags. And then the dog goes, you said a word about five seconds ago. I have no idea what it means, but oh, wow, you threw a cookie. Cool. So you have to have the right timing. And it is a skill. I'm not going to lie. It's a skill. It is a skill. I recently thought about this and I thought the reason this is so hard for us humans to get the order right and to not do it simultaneously is because there's a cue transfer process happening for us. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, if we can just slow it down for the human then it becomes a pattern for them. I mean, we all know how much we love patterns, right? I mean, seriously. I mean, thank you, Leslie. Yeah. And so if we can put a pattern into the way we teach our client, click, reach, deliver, or, you know, your hand yeah. is full of treats at your side. And that's one of the first things I teach a dog is I have food in my hand and it is not available. I don't teach it your choice. Yeah. I teach there's food in my hand. And if you mug it, not a damn thing happens. But if you go, oh, well, nothing's gonna, coming out yeah. of that. I go click and I deliver a piece of food to the other side. And pretty soon the dog goes, oh, the food is there, but it's unavailable. Yeah. That's the first concept we have to teach the dogs. 
and if I have a dog that's mugging a bait bag, yep, I'm putting the food in my hand big time. Or even if I don't have a dog that's mugging my bait bag, I'm pretty darn good about reaching my hand in pretty easily because I have the right type of food. And that's another thing, having the right type of food. And the right type of bait bag if you're using one. Yes. Because there are ones where it's really easy to get out the food. And then there are ones that are like, they're just designed to make you miserable. Oh, it's miserable. Drawstring bags are just, yeah. again, I'm very specific. No drawstring bait bags in my classes. No Ziploc bags in my classes. I have been through a plethora of bait bags. What's your favorite? My favorites for right now at home, because I train a lot of dogs in boarding and training. I have one that holds so damn much food. It's huge and it has two partitions in it. So I could have small dog food on one side and big dog food on the other. But I also have food that if I'm going to throw food, I don't want it to waft away in the wind. I want it to roll and move so the dog can see it and chase it. Yeah. And there are some foods that I want to kind of waft as I scatter yeah. it. So knowing what foods to use is very valuable. The freeze dried stuff or like the liver things that you can get in the big container or the crumbly stuff. Oh, I hate the crumbly stuff. No, no crumbles. I hate crumbles. And I hate the slimy stuff. I do too. That's why I air dry my cheese because I do not like slimy. In fact, we just transitioned to another bait that we use. It's dog food again. And the main reason we changed from the other to this is the slime factor. <laughs> I mean, this is costing us a hell of a lot more, but you know what? I'll take it because I don't have slime yeah. all over. <laughs> it's a life quality issue. Totally. Oh my God. We could nerd out on <laughs> foods to use, right? Jeez. Yes. So <laughs> what I do because of the, the slime, when I want higher value foods, my current best approach to that is I'll cut up my hot dogs or my cheese or whatever I'm using, which is prone to getting slimy. Mm -hmm. Especially when I'm in, I'm sometimes in hot climates here in Mexico. Right. I think that is a trick that Sue Ailsby told me about originally. I like wrap it in a kitchen towel to soak up some of the moisture. Yes. And then that is something I added myself. I add in kibble. I like shake it up good. So the kibble will soak up some more moisture oh. and then I put it in the freezer And the cable also makes sure that the stuff doesn't freeze together into one large lump of like a tennis ball sized treat. Yeah. And then I get it right out of the freezer and put it in my bait bag. And especially when the climate is hot, most dogs really like that it's cold because they're hot too. Yes. And it'll slowly during the progression of my hike or of my training session, start getting more slimy again. But by the time it's really slimy, I'm done already anyway. Right. Exactly. Oh my God. And plus the kibble is absorbing the odor and the moisture. So now your kibble actually tastes more like hot dog. Yeah. So you have the bonus there. I've talked about this little boxer that's on this hydrolyzed diet. My next trick, and I'm going to try it. I don't know how to do it, is to actually put some canned food in her kibble. And I think I'll do the same thing. There's not a lot of moisture in the canned food, though. That's one thing. So I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm going to try that. I talked about it to the client. I said, you know what? I'm going to try this and I just haven't done it. Yeah. But that might be a project for this weekend to give that a shot and see if I can't get the kibble more canned food tasting and the canned food less slimy. If your canned food doesn't have a lot of moisture, I wonder if you could, what's that called? It's called a licuadora in Spanish. 
like the smoothie maker. Yeah. Nice. If you just put a little bit of water and the canned food into the smoothie maker, make it a little more liquidy. <gasps> yes. And maybe put the those are things to try. And that's what the client did is he took the canned food and made it a little bit more moist so he could squeeze it out into the pyramid things. And that's what he baked. And the dog hasn't been very keyed in on those other than she did finally. After she started learning the marker cues, she went, oh, that word means eat this food that you threw. So I'll eat the food you threw regardless of what it is. I also have a client who has that hydrolyzed diet. I didn't even know it existed yeah. before she told me that her dog was on it and didn't particularly like the kibble and the canned version of that same diet. She put it in the pyramid pans and baked it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. But also I apparently hydrolyzed food is not particularly great. Oh, it's horrible. I didn't even know it was a thing. Yeah. Now you are talking about it too. So apparently dogs are being put on that food. Maybe it's a new invention. This poor little dog was really sick as a puppy. She evidently broke her leg and then she got an intestinal infection somehow. And so she was on antibiotics a lot. Her gut is just destroyed. And plus she's stressed, right? And stress and gut problems kind of go hand in hand. And even the dogs that eat anything, like I had some kibble left over from the training session from her and I brought another dog out and he went yeah I ain't eating that that's gross and it just it just smells horrible yeah anyway I can't stand the smell of it I can't imagine a dog having to eat it anyway <laughs> I'm sure it's what she needs I'm not a veterinarian god knows I'm not gonna play one but uh, it does present its challenges to getting dogs to eat and that's why getting your dogs to eat on cue is so valuable. I guarantee if I went yep to my Labrador and handed him a pill, he'd go, I can eat that because you told me to eat that mom. And I have no doubt that he would. I don't have to hide it. Yeah. And he wouldn't even notice because yeah. he just swallowed it whole. Yeah. Whereas a dog who doesn't know that cue will like be like, okay, what is that? What do I do with it? Right. Maybe I chew it. Right. Oof, that's disgusting. That's gross. Versus if you just swallow the thing as a whole thing, you don't realize that it's disgusting. And you know, when there are dogs, even in training, I've got a little, uh, he's a doodle. He's a big puppy, but he's one of those chewers. Everything's a three course meal. So we have to use really small, we're, we're using small dog food for him versus yeah. the big stuff that he really should be eating. Yeah. Because he's one of those, you know, you click and you deliver it or he comes and gets it and he goes and he swallows. He's getting better now that he's learning that he can eat the stuff without having to make it a three course meal. And I'm sure at some point in time, I'll be able to change over to a more functional food that's bigger <laughs> and it was going to satisfy him a little bit more. But, you know, in the beginning it was just like, no, I can't chew. That's squishy. I can't chew that. That's too squishy. Yeah. We'll get there. Well, I mean, I get it. I hate shrimps because of the texture. Maybe some dogs feel that way about certain foods. <laughs> I love shrimp. But yeah, there are things that I can't eat because of texture. And it's normally anything that's got lumpy, bumpy stuff in it like grits yeah and here i am moving to tennessee and what is the biggest thing shrimp and grits so anyway we'll see <laughs> uh, i think i'll just stick it to shrimp and not the grits yeah <laughs> well that's a good moment to wrap up yes our listeners will have a lot to think about after listening to that one and so do i i'm sure there's someone out there hearing this and thinking oh i want to learn more how can people get in touch with you I'm certainly on Facebook. Um, go to me, Karen Deeds. I think I'm actually Karen Deeds CDBC. 
And our website is www.deedscanineconnection.com. Deeds is dog, elephant, elephant, dog, Sam. And canine is all spelled out, C-A-N-I-N-E, connection.com. Or my guess is if you Googled my name or my husband's name, you'd probably come up. We're old. We've been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> or my personal email address is canine connection, all spelled out, at charter.net. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'll put all of those into the show notes. Perfect. And I'll make sure to also put your FDSA webinar or workshop, which will hopefully be already available and on a calendar by the time this airs into the show notes. And maybe by that time, there will already also be a loose leash walking taught by means of marker cues webinar in the works. I'm going to keep poking you about that one. I think you're going to have to. I will. I will. Oh my God. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to have to. You know what? I have two dogs of my own that I've never taught loose leash walking to. Shocker. Perfect. (laughs) They have a remarkable recall. Here you go. Your example video, step by step. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. How awesome is that? All right. You pushed me, girl. You pushed me. Awesome. It was great. Thank you. It was so great talking to you. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your experiences. I really hope I get to meet you in person at some point. Me too. I've never been to Tennessee. I've been to Texas. Well, now there is a reason to go to Tennessee. There is. You're Mexico. There's always a reason to go to Mexico. Yeah, there is. There's always a reason to go to Mexico. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let me know if you're coming to Mexico. I'll meet you wherever you're going. Okay. Sounds good, Chrissy. Thank you. Thank you. All right, girl. It was great. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.